This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. When you hear cage-free eggs, do you picture hens outside roaming around? Well, that's what those egg companies want you to think. Really, cage-free hens live crammed indoors. Meanwhile, Vital Farms hens are pasture-raised, on actual pastures, with plenty of grass and sunshine for healthier hens and better eggs. Vital Farms pasture-raised. Visit vitalfarms.com coupon and look for us in the black carton at the grocery store. Hey guys, Charlie here. I'm taking a quick break from my maternity leave to let you guys all know that I did have my baby, which was very much a relief by the end of pregnancy, as I'm sure a lot of you out there can understand. Beckett was born at the end of August. He weighed nine pounds, 12 ounces. He is lovable and adorable and chubby and all the great things a new baby can be. I will put a picture up on the Insight Facebook page. I've shared some pictures already in our group. I just wanted to update everyone and let you know that I did have the baby. We're all doing very well. And we're very happy to have our sixth and final little newborn in our house. Welcome to Insight. This is a very pregnant Charlie talking to you, but by the time you hear this, I will be resting up and not quite so pregnant. With me, as always, is Allie. How are you, Allie? I am doing well from the past in the future. How are you? I'm doing okay. I'm just really ready to be on the other side of this pregnancy. (laughs) (laughs) You're nearly there. All right, so tonight's story is about the 1985 murders of Derek and Nancy Haysom. They were a well-to-do couple who lived in Virginia. Their daughter, Elizabeth, is serving time for accessory to murder, and their daughter's college boyfriend, Jens, is serving time for committing the murders. But some people out there think that that should actually be reversed. Some believe that Elizabeth is the one who is there at the time of the murders, And that Jens is, if not completely innocent, he's certainly not guilty of murder. Our story starts with Derek and Nancy Haysom. Derek was South African and built his wealth as a steel company executive in South Africa, which is where he met Nancy. Nancy was from Virginia, but she was a world traveler her entire life thanks to her father's career as a geologist. She met and married Derek in South Africa in 1960, and they had both been married before, and between them, they had five children. Their only child together, a daughter named Elizabeth, was born in 1964 when Derek was 51 years old and Nancy was 32. The family primarily raised Elizabeth in Canada, where Derek had relocated in order to run the largest steel mill there. Elizabeth attended the best schools, and for secondary school, she boarded at Wycombe Abbey in England. She loved her time at boarding school, though she didn't see a lot of her parents while she was there. They had retired back to Virginia, the area where her mother grew up, and lived in a somewhat rural but well-to-do area. They didn't visit England much while she was there, and she didn't go home except for major holidays. Elizabeth was very much into writing and art, though her father wanted her to go into math and science, possibly become an engineer, and this became quite a point of contention. 
In her last year of school, she either failed or didn't show up for her A-level exams, which ruined her chances of getting into any of the prestigious English universities that she had hoped to attend. Some point to her school failures and her hatred toward her parents as stemming from this disagreement about what courses she should take, but that seems extremely simplistic to me. Her next decision after leaving school was to run away to Europe with her girlfriend and fall into a life of drugs and of doing whatever it took to get the money she needed for more drugs. I think there was more going on here than a disagreement over courses. Whether she had started using drugs while at Wycombe or if it was something she started after she ran away, we don't know. But extreme behaviors usually have a deeper cause than daddy didn't want her to become an artist. We do know there were accusations of childhood sexual abuse made by Elizabeth and then retracted by Elizabeth and then made again by Elizabeth. And we'll get into that more later. But that might explain more her reaction to her parents disapproving of an art career. Why it seems so extreme to drop out of school and run away over it. The timeline isn't entirely clear on how long Elizabeth stayed in Europe, but she was back home in Virginia by the time she was 20, so we're talking less than two years. When she returned to Virginia, she continued to rebel against her parents, and they tried to exercise more control over her. She saw it as controlling at the time, but some of it could be their attempts to keep her sober because she was returning to Virginia and they were attempting to get her off drugs. But here she was. She's a legal adult. She was living with her parents full-time for the first time in many years because she had been at boarding school for so long. And here they are trying to discipline her now. There was bound to be some conflict at some level over that. Elizabeth enrolled at the University of Virginia in 1984 and received a prestigious scholarship for her academic giftedness. Even with her issues at school, she was able to qualify for this scholarship. She was a little older than other freshmen, being that she was 20. At a beginning-of-the-year event that they had for all the scholarship winners, kind of a mingle-type social thing, she met an 18-year-old student named Jens Zuring. Jens was born in Thailand and the son of a German diplomat. He moved to the U.S. with his father when he was about 11 years old and then went to school in Atlanta, Georgia. His upbringing has been described as sheltered. After high school, his father took another position in Detroit. Jens had originally intended to return to Germany for university, but he decided to go to the University of Virginia after he was awarded their top scholarship and that provided his full costs for all four years. After meeting Elizabeth in late August, he didn't see her again for several weeks. Her initial view of him was that he was rude, perhaps a little arrogant. He thought that she was attractive and worldly. But they had different groups of friends, so it wasn't until October that they reconnected, they started casually dating in November, and then they fell in love in December. They began to write each other lengthy love letters. Elizabeth was beautiful and experienced. She had numerous relationships with men and women, where Jens was non-experienced. Elizabeth was his first real girlfriend and the first person he ever had sex with. The relationship, according to these letters, it became pretty intense pretty quickly. 
they both kept the letters, which was something that would be used against them later. So I guess the lesson here is don't keep or send love letters. No wonder it's a lost art. But anyway, that brings us to winter break and they both went back to their respective parents' homes for the holidays. Jens went to Michigan. He knew no one there and he hated the cold. Elizabeth wrote him letters complaining about her parents and their drinking as well as loneliness of being there. Like Jens, her parents were living somewhere where she didn't grow up, so the only people she knew, they were connected to her parents. Elizabeth's letters turn rather dramatic in saying she thinks her will for her parents to die may be causing them odd accidents. She also mentions waiting until they graduate to get away from them, or perhaps they could get rid of them sooner. In his turn, Jens writes that if he ever met them, he would bring a powerful weapon, which in his mind was his love for Elizabeth, and somehow that would overpower them and either drive them crazy or give them heart attacks, or maybe even make them come around to being loving people. Before we go any further, let's stop and take a word from our sponsor. Blue Apron has been huge in my last weeks of pregnancy and these first weeks of having a new baby. I love that they send me fresh food with clear instructions that even the non-chefs in my family can follow. Blue Apron's mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. One of the things I like most about Blue Apron is that I don't have to compromise my standards for food using a food delivery service. With Blue Apron, the seafood is sourced sustainably under standards developed in partnership with the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch, which is something I use when I go shopping myself. Produce is sourced from farms that practice regenerative farming. For less than $10 per person per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes with these pre-proportioned ingredients so that you can make these delicious home-cooked meals yourself. Two meals I'm most looking forward to as we move into the autumn season are the skillet vegetable chili with cornmeal and cheddar drop biscuits, and the garlic butter shrimp and corn with green bean salad and roasted purple tomatoes. Both of those sound amazing. You can check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com site. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com site. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. After winter break, Jens said that Elizabeth had taken him back to her house, but never when her parents were there. Eventually, though, her parents came to town in February of 1985 and wanted to take both of them to lunch. And they did the usual parent routine of sizing him up, asking him questions about his family, asking him about his upbringing. His love for Elizabeth did not, in fact, overpower them. They really didn't care for Jens. They didn't think he was good enough for Elizabeth overall. Nancy told a family member that Jens seemed jumpy at the meal. That could have been nerves at meeting the parents, but it also could have been nerves at meeting these parents specifically. Elizabeth had told him that her father was strict, and like we said before, she made accusations of sexual abuse. These accusations were against her mother. She told Jens, and Jens believes to this day, that Elizabeth was sexually abused as a teen girl by her mother. Elizabeth would later say this was not true, that her mother did abuse her but not sexually, but in more recent years, in 
an interview she gave, which she doesn't give these often, she vaguely reasserted her original allegation against her mother. Overall, Elizabeth hated her parents, and Jens loved Elizabeth, and they shared this rage against Derek and Nancy. And this is what many believe is what led to their murders. On March 30th, 1985, Derek and Nancy Hasem were brutally stabbed multiple times and their throats were cut. Four days later, Nancy's best friend would find them when she arrived to the home to check on them after some friends and even Elizabeth had contacted her because no one could get in touch with Nancy. Derek was lying on his side near the doorway and so he was the first one Nancy's friend saw. Nancy was in the kitchen. On the table were three place settings left from a meal that had been finished. Derek and Nancy were the only two who lived in the home, so the third place setting was curious. Did they have a dinner guest who left prior to the murders, or was the dinner guest the murderer? Nancy was dressed in her nightgown and a robe, and that stood out. Because if the dinner guest was the murderer, it would have had to have been someone a person like Nancy, a proper woman, would have been comfortable being in her night clothes in front of. And that wouldn't have been just anyone. You would imagine it'd have to be someone that she was very friendly with, like a very close friend or family member. Also, the violence and the overkill at the scene indicated a rage that's more common in a personal killing, not a random killing. There were no signs of forced entry or robbery, which is also a factor that would lead investigators towards the murderer being someone familiar to the Haysoms. Fingerprints were taken from various surfaces. While DNA was not possible and the scene was incredibly bloody already, they were able to find blood samples that could not have come from the victims because Derek had type A blood and Nancy type AB. But both B and O were found on the screen door as well as in the master bedroom. In stabbings like this one, where the victims were stabbed repeatedly, it's not uncommon for the murderer to have cut themselves on the knife because it'll get slippery and wet. In this case, the two other blood types could have meant two other people were on the scene. A lot of people believe that, though, that ultimately would not be the position of the prosecution. These blood samples were collected and stored, which will come into the story later on as DNA technology becomes available. There were signs that someone attempted to clean up the scene. Obviously, they knew they weren't going to be able to clean up all of the blood, but maybe there was something they wanted to get rid of, maybe shoe prints or palm prints in the blood, perhaps. If getting rid of footprints was the goal, they failed. There were three prints left, one from a tennis shoe and two what appears to be sock prints. According to the forensic examination report, one sock print didn't have enough information for analysis and the second would correspond with a women's size 6.5 to 7.5 or a men's size 5 or 6. And this is smaller than both Jens and Elizabeth's feet. The shoe in print is 10.5 to 11 inches in length and is the complete sole of a shoe. It does not give an estimate on what this would mean as far as shoe size, but there was a large study done on the correlation between shoe print measurements and actual shoe size. It was published in 1985 in the Journal of Forensic Sciences. A shoe print of this size would correlate to a shoe size of 5.5 to 8 in men's, which would be on the small size for a man because in the US the average men's shoe size is a 10.5, and this would be too small for yen's. 
If we convert it to a woman's size, it'd be a seven and a half to a 10. Now, Elizabeth wore a size eight or eight and a half, but then again, most women would fall in this range because the average women's shoe size in the US is a size nine. So this range would fit the majority of women in the US. Elizabeth's fingerprints were found on a vodka bottle. The report referred to them as latent prints. Now, latent prints are the ones we leave because of the oils and sweats on our hands. And patent prints are the ones left in substances like blood. So we know from the report calling them latent prints that they weren't left in blood. That would have been incriminating, but Elizabeth's prints being on an item in her parents' home is not. Now, there's no way to date fingerprints, so we don't know when she saw them last for sure. They live just an hour or hour and a half from the University of Virginia. So it's possible Elizabeth may have been over there shortly before their deaths. A knife that matched the type of wounds found on the victims was found in a set owned by the Haysoms. It was the only knife in the drawer with blood residue on it. It's possible the murderer quickly cleaned it and then put it back in the drawer, hoping to conceal it. Jens and Elizabeth had an alibi. On Friday, March 29, the day before the murders, they rented a car and drove to Washington, D.C. for the weekend. They checked into a hotel and they went to lunch and the movies on Saturday and they drove back on Sunday afternoon. According to rental reports, however, they put around 400 more miles on the car than the trip from the university to D.C. and then back again would take. They excused this by saying they had driven around a bit and they got lost. But 400 miles, it's not a short distance on the highway, and that would mean they were going highway speeds the entire time. It would have been more than six hours in drive time. But in doing this math, the police realised the mileage would account from going from the university to DC, then from DC to the Haysom's home, back to DC, and then back to the university. And since it's not 1985 anymore, and we have Google Maps and not just Rand McNally and a calculator, we did check it ourselves and it is correct. I think it's more believable that someone left DC in that car and drove to the Hasten's home, then they got lost for over six hours. We're just going to pause right here to take a quick break for a word from a sponsor. I'm always looking for things I can do with my dog, Lacey. And one thing that I recently found was Link AKC. You guys have heard me talking about it. We've been using it for a few months now. And I love this. I love the GPS locator. I always know where my dog is. I like that it can track whether or not my kids have taken the dog for a walk and for how long. And really, I love the activity and wellness tracker. It doesn't matter how old your dog is. Link AKC shows the exact amount of activity every dog needs. It won CES Best of Innovation Award in 2017. It's super comfortable and it looks great. You can head on over to Facebook to see the pictures I have of Lacey wearing the collar. You can take advantage of the Link AKC Summer Sale for big savings on a collar to keep your dog safe, happy, and healthy. Plus, as a special thank you for supporting Insight, use code SIGHT at checkout at linkakc.com to save even more and get free shipping. That's code SIGHT, S-I-G-H-T, at L-I-N-K-A-K-C.com, linkakc.com, code SIGHT. Investigators continued through the summer working on the case. They had gotten footprints, fingerprints, and blood samples from Elizabeth to compare to the scene, and now they wanted the same from Jens. He went to make a statement, and he provided the police with the alibi they had, 
but said he'd have to think about giving these samples, and he wanted to consult with the German consulate first before he consented to giving any blood samples or any prints. Even with this, one of the investigators, a man named Reed, didn't think Jens was involved. He said that Jens looked like a kid who had never even been in a fight before and wouldn't have been capable of such a brutal attack. A few days later, Jens agreed over the phone to come in and give the samples in a week. Six days later, investigators Reed and his partner on the case, Gardner, received phone calls that Jens and Elizabeth had left the country. They didn't leave together. That would probably have made it easier to catch them. They left separately, and they had a destination spot that they would eventually meet up and then continue on from there. So they met in France and went to Bulgaria by car. They were turned around at the border because they didn't have the proper visas. After they turned around, they were in a car accident. They weren't hurt, but they had to settle stuff in traffic court. And when they figured that out, they then flew to Thailand, and they stayed there long enough to get fake papers. They eventually made their way to England. But before they left for Europe, Jens left some letters behind. He had one left to his parents, trying to explain why he left. He maintained his innocence of the murders in that letter. And then he also wrote a letter to the investigators, Reed and Gardner. He said he was sure that their investigation would lead them to the right person, but that he was incapable of the brutal crime and that he had been unhappy in Virginia for a while. And that's the real reason he left. While Reed was 99% sure Jens was innocent before he fled, Gardner thought he was a viable suspect. But after they fled, they both settled on Jens and Elizabeth as suspects. Fleeing in the middle of a school semester, right after being asked to provide fingerprints and blood samples in an investigation for a murder, I mean, it doesn't sound like what innocent people would do. And anyone who's listened to us for any length of time knows that we try really hard not to judge people based on their initial reactions or even some of their overt actions after traumatic events. But this was something like six months after the murders, and it's hard to fault the police for bumping Jens up on their suspect list after this. This timing was flat-out suspect. To make money while they were in England, they started this scam, where one of them would go into a Marks and Spencer department store and buy an item with a check. The other would later go in and return that item at a different branch of the same store and get cash back. The check would bounce, of course, and they would have the cash in hand. But the sums remained small enough, 50 pounds in 1985, so that would have been about 150 pounds today to just for inflation. So the fraud just wasn't reported because it was always such small amounts. But in all, they made 6,000 pounds this way, which would be not quite 18,000 pounds in today's money. They used that money to open a new account with a different bank entirely, and with a legit bank account with money in it, they were able to rent an apartment under another set of aliases. Except they got careless. They were both seen in the same Marks and Spencer store at the same time, and the clerk recognised them. They were arrested on April 30, 1986, exactly 13 months after the murders. In late May, detectives in Virginia were asked if they wanted to speak to them while they were in custody. And in Virginia, they had to move quickly. 
They filed indictments against Elizabeth and Jens and flew to England to talk to them. They also searched their apartment and found the love letters that they had saved, including the ones where Elizabeth said that she wanted her parents dead. Now, if you remember back to our Kathleen Forbig episode, she had written entries in her diary that could be read more than one way. They could sound like confessions or they could sound like the frustrations of a woman who felt misplaced guilt for things. While Elizabeth's letters sound like she wanted her parents dead, which is pretty clear, most could be taken as venting. The most incriminating letter, which you can't find the whole text, there is just an excerpt. It's a letter that makes it sound like Elizabeth is threatening to break up with Jens if he doesn't kill her parents. But because it's not in context, because we don't have the whole letter, I don't really know. While being questioned in London, Elizabeth briefly confesses. She's being pushed that she was the one who set things in motion for Jens to kill her parents. She said, I did it myself. The questioner said, don't be silly. She replied, I got off on it. The questioner asked her, you did what and what does that mean? She just replied to that that she was being facetious. The questioning then continues along the lines of her setting the scene, but Jens being the actual murderer. Jens did not have a lawyer with him when he gave a statement, but he decided to confess. According to him, he made a calculated decision to confess. He had promised Elizabeth that he would protect her. According to him, she had confessed to him that she had committed the crime. But she would be facing the death penalty in court, whereas he believed he had some type of diplomatic immunity in the U.S. due to his father's job. After all, his visa and his passport were diplomatic visa and a diplomatic passport. He thought that he would be sent to Germany to face charges there. As comes up when we look at sentencing in the U.S. versus other countries, the U.S. has harsh penalties. For one, we have the death penalty in most states, but also life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. He believed that had he gone to Germany, he was facing more like 10 years versus Elizabeth facing an execution. And to give you an idea of the heroic role he cast himself in, he said that he thought back to a tale of two cities while he was in jail in London, and he saw himself as a Sydney Carton type. Now, A Tale of Two Cities, it was published in 1859, so I think the spoiler alert has run out on this, so I'm going to give it away. Sydney switches places with someone who is meant to be executed in order to save that person's life. Jens was seeing himself as replacing himself for Elizabeth to save her life, but he wouldn't actually have to be killed. He would just go to jail for 10 years or less. His confession wasn't a one or two liner like Elizabeth's that Allie had read. He had a whole story. He's later said that he and Elizabeth came up with it together in order to protect her. His story was that he didn't go there to kill the Haysoms. He went to convince them to stop opposing him and Elizabeth being together. He was invited in by Derek. He said Nancy came downstairs and started arguing with her husband about a painting. They were both drinking and this drinking is confirmed in their autopsy reports. When investigator stopped him and asked him what Nancy was wearing when she came down the stairs, he said she was wearing jeans. If you recall, she wasn't wearing jeans. She was in her night clothes. The Hasems, though arguing over a painting, still invited Jens to sit and eat with them. The arguing eventually turned toward Jens, and they said he could never see Elizabeth again. 
He got up to leave and Derek pushed him. Jens then pulled out his knife and slashed Derek across the throat, hitting his jugular. Nancy went to the kitchen and came back with a knife. Jens took the knife from her and slashed her in the neck. Derek, though bleeding profusely at this point, I guess came at him and hit him in the head. Then he doesn't remember a lot of the attack after that. He remembers he threw his clothing and the two knives in the dumpster down the street. He went back to the house in his socks to clean up his footprints, and that's how he inadvertently left his sock print there. So much of the story doesn't match the evidence. First, the motive was weak. I mean, Elizabeth didn't care what her parents said about anything she did. He later said that he had to go that route if he made it any stronger and brought up the abuse in Elizabeth's past or how they treated Elizabeth, he was afraid it would point too much in Elizabeth's direction, and then the investigators would think she was involved. The sequence of events didn't match the wounds or make a whole lot of sense. He later said, you know, that Elizabeth is the one who committed the murder and that she had told him that her father was lying in the doorway. So he thought this meant her father was lying across the threshold of the door frame with his feet in one room and his head in the other, and so that's what he had in his confession, except that's not how he was laying. He was laying across the threshold, so his whole body was entirely in one room. Jens also said he threw away the two knives, but they found a knife matching the wounds with blood residue on it at the scene. The knife he described to police was also not consistent with any of the wounds. He never mentioned going into the master bedroom, though that's where they found the type O blood, Type O being Jens's blood type. So there are obvious issues with his confession just right on the surface. And he did recant his confession pretty quickly when he realized that his diplomatic immunity did not cover this murder and that he would be tried in U.S. courts. Both Jens and Elizabeth were given psychological evaluations. Jens was diagnosed with folie à deux, which is a shared psychosis. This condition is not in the current DSM-5, but basically his close relationship to Elizabeth and her beliefs that her parents were a threat to her and to them had transferred that to Jens. Elizabeth was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. And what that is, it is a serious mental disorder marked by a pattern of ongoing instability in moods, behaviour, self-image and functioning. These experiences often result in impulsive actions and unstable relationships. And while no one knows the exact cause of any personality disorder, and we can't rule out genetics here, it has been estimated that something like 70% of people with borderline personality disorder, they suffered from childhood sexual abuse. The vast majority, and this is something like 90% of people with borderline personality disorder, they suffered from some type of abuse in their childhoods. Less than six months after their arrest in England, Elizabeth decided to make a deal. She did not fight extradition. She wrote Jens a letter saying she was going back to Virginia and she was going to plead guilty. She was going to face what she had done. She made a plea deal that she was charged with accessory before the fact and that at her first parole hearing, the prosecutor would support her application for parole. Also, as part of this plea deal, of course, Elizabeth would have to give a complete confession in court and testify against Jens. So in May of 1987, in a three-day hearing, Elizabeth answered all the questions of the crime. She did contend that she did not know 
Jens was actually going to kill her parents when he left. She did think that he was just going there to talk to them, but she set up an alibi for him, so that also doesn't make a lot of sense. If she thought he was just going there to have a chat, why would she set up an alibi? And how she set up the alibi was that she stayed in Washington, D.C. while he went to her parents' home. She bought multiple tickets to multiple movies to make it look like they both went to the movies the whole of Saturday. After she went to see the last movie of the day, the Rocky Horror Picture Show, Jens drove up to pick her up. When she opened the door and the dome light came on, Jens was wearing a white bedsheet and he was covered in blood. She went back to the hotel with him where he cleaned up and he sent her downstairs to the rental car to clean the blood out of it. Now, after her hearing her half-brother spoke, one claimed that Elizabeth was a liar and that he didn't believe her story. He thinks she was there when their parents were killed. Her other brother concurred and said that they wanted her to get the maximum penalty possible. She was eventually given a 90-year total sentence, 45 years on each count, to be served consecutively. Now, 90 years doesn't sound like a really great deal. You would almost think she would have held out for a shorter sentence, or she would have at least wanted him concurrent or something like that. Her first date of eligibility for parole was in eight years, and the prosecutor said that he would go and advocate for her release. She, was, she likely assumed she wasn't actually going to serve more than a decade. While all of this was happening in a Virginia courtroom, Jens was still in England fighting extradition to the U.S. His hope was still to be sent to Germany. His main reason to fight extradition was that he'd be facing the death penalty in the U.S. Even back in the 1980s, most European countries had abolished the death penalty. The case eventually made it to the European Court of Justice, which is the highest court in the European Union. They ruled in July of 1989 that Jens could not be extradited to the U.S. unless the death penalty was off the table for his case. This was a groundbreaking decision because it was the first time such a decision had been made. It's also interesting because it wasn't the execution that barred him from being extradited. He'd argued that it was the treatment of prisoners on death row with the substandard conditions and the isolation that was inhuman. The state of Virginia agreed and he arrived in the US in January of 1990 he faced two counts of first-degree murder, with him facing a life sentence if convicted. Yen's trial was the first to be televised in Virginia's history. The transparency of broadcasting public sessions like trials ended up being pretty important here. The judge in this case was asked by the defence to rescue himself. He was a personal friend of Nancy Hazen's brother, and they had been since their school days together. The judge denied the request, stating he could stay fair and impartial regardless, and the public seeing the case televised, well, they'd be able to judge for themselves. The real conflict here that I saw in the clips of the trial was that the judge was very quick to shut down any discussion of Nancy Hasem sexually abusing her daughter. Now, Elizabeth denied it happened, even though at the scene, five or six nude photos of Elizabeth as a teenager was found in her mother's room, Elizabeth said that they had been taken by her mother. The judge felt this was gossip and not evidence, yet the defence believed it was proof that Elizabeth, not Jens, had the rage motive necessary to carry out such a brutal attack. 
Others say the photos were because Nancy was a painter and she was using Elizabeth as a model. Elizabeth, as promised, testified against Jens and told more or less the same story at Jens's trial, except here she admitted that she did know he was going to kill her parents. She was actually more worried he would back out of doing it rather than she was afraid he would actually go through with it. She also said they created their alibi in a diary form and her roommate helped them write it out. Elizabeth and Jens dictated it to the roommate, but the roommate was never called to corroborate this. She also told a story about going down and cleaning the blood out of the car, but someone from the rental car place testified that the car was returned exceptionally clean. Luminol tests on the car to look for invisible blood found nothing. So did Jens really drive that car while wrapped in a sheet covered in blood for three or more hours and not leave a single drop that Elizabeth hadn't managed to scrub out. And she said she took Coca-Cola down to clean with because Jens told her Coca-Cola will destroy the evidence. But they didn't see stains of Coca-Cola anywhere either. The car was completely clean. So this, again, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense. This is one of the holes in this story. Regardless, Jens's confession was clearly the key piece of evidence, and since Elizabeth's story more or less matched it, it was probably given a lot of weight. There was also an expert that testified that the socked footprint matched Jens's foot perfectly, though it's a debate about that expert. He was an expert in imprints, but specialized in tires, not shoe prints. The victims in this case had type A and type AB blood, Yet they found that O blood at the scene that we mentioned before. Now, Jens had type O blood. Okay, so does 40% of the U.S. population, so it's not exactly a slam dunk. The other blood found at the scene that did not match the victims was type B, which is shared by more like 10% of the population, and Elizabeth had type B blood. The defense's job was to cast reasonable doubt, and they did this by pointing squarely at Elizabeth Hayson. To overcome the supposed false confession, Jens took to the stand to give his version of events. Jens' story was that Elizabeth owed money to a drug dealer, and in order to pay off this debt, she had agreed to help him deliver a package of drugs from D.C. to another area. She had asked Jens to buy tickets to the various movies throughout the day, and then meet her back at the hotel. She told Jens that he was acting as her alibi, not for a murder, but for the drug deal. It wasn't until she returned to the hotel that she told him she had killed her parents and he had to help her. Basically, we have her saying that she was the one watching the movies and he says it was him. There are two things that swing in his favour that he was the one who stayed in Washington, D.C. One, Elizabeth had the wrong time for the tickets to the last show. And we're not talking about a little bit here, but six hours. Second, Jens had a cheque cashed in D.C. that Elizabeth never mentioned in her statement. Jens said she never mentioned it because she didn't know he did it. Had she been the one who stayed behind in D.C. forming an alibi, she would have been the one who cashed the cheque and would have mentioned it. And there are a few things against Jens from the start. One was his initial confession. He either lied then or he was lying on the stand, and this undermines his overall credibility. Second, Jens was very intelligent, and the prosecution played on this while he was on the stand, getting him to say things that came across as condescending. 
This didn't play well with anyone, as you can imagine. Jens was found guilty and sentenced to two consecutive life terms. His first chance at parole was 2003, but every attempt has been denied. Evidence has come out since the trial that may have changed things for Jens. One of the strangest is an FBI profile that may or may not have happened. An FBI agent and one of the investigators claimed that a profile was made that concluded that the murderer was likely female. This was never turned over to the defense, as would have been required. And, in fact, it's completely missing from all of the files. But one of the other investigators says it never happened. There was never any profile to turn over. The second thing is that a man named Tony Buchanan came forward to say that a woman he believed was Elizabeth Hasem brought him a car to be repaired and cleaned. He said there was dried blood inside the car, though he thought it was likely from a game animal, possibly a deer, since it was just after hunting season and in an area known for hunting. The undercarriage of the car was also caked in mud and grass, which gave the impression that someone was out hunting. This car was not the rental car. The belief of Jens's defense team is that another car was used to get to and from the actual crime scene, and that's why the rental car was completely clean. There was a man with Elizabeth when she brought this car in, but Tony says it was absolutely not Jens. And if you see a picture of Jens at that time, he, he stood out. He also added a German-English hybrid accent, so he would have been noticeable. And Tony says, absolutely not Jens. He claims he called the investigators and even the judge at this time. But both of the people he said he talked to denied he ever contacted them at the time and that he's just coming up with a story years later for attention or whatever reason. Lastly, as we all know, forensics have come a long way since 1985. In 2009, Virginia undertook a large project. They conducted DNA tests on old cases as a post-conviction testing program, and 42 samples from the Haysom crime scene were included. Only 11 were in large enough amounts and good enough quality to be tested, and none of them matched Jens or Elizabeth. Two of those samples were of the type O blood that prosecutors used at trial to link Jens to the crime scene. But now here we have the DNA excluding it from being him. None of the Hasems had type O blood. So someone was at that house that night, was bleeding, and had type O blood. So if Jens was there and he was a part of this, we know that someone else was there. So who is this other person that he's never said was there all these years. He would be protecting them. Alternately, it was Elizabeth who was there with someone else, perhaps the person she was doing the drug run with, and it's his blood at the scene. And that's what a lot of people who believe Jens is innocent believe really happened. Jens was pursuing another angle to get out of prison beside from parole. He spent years seeking reparation to Germany in 2010, Virginia Governor Tim Kaine granted the request and sent the information to the Justice Department. But he was leaving office and the incoming governor, he reversed the decision. Jens continues to petition to be sent back to Germany, leaning heavily on the DNA tests as proof of innocence. And he recently found some additional support. 
in May of this year, and we're talking 2017 for those listening in the future, a sheriff of Virginia named Chip Harding, he reviewed the case. He spent 200 hours reviewing the evidence and trial transcripts, as well as the evidence that has come out since the case went to trial. In a detailed 19-page report, he concluded that first, Jens would not be convicted if he was tried with all the evidence today, and that secondly, the evidence points towards his innocence. His theory was that Elizabeth Hayson was present at the time of the murders with two men who left their blood evidence behind, and neither of these men were Jens. The original two investigators on this case, they remain split. One believes 100% that Jens is innocent and the other 100% that he's guilty. As for Jens, he continues to wait for a decision from the current governor of Virginia about repatriation to Germany. And surely that report from Sheriff Harding will help. And we'll give you an update when that decision comes through. In spite of her plea deal, Elizabeth has been in jail this entire time. The prosecutor has spoken up for her at her parole hearings as agreed on, but she's been repeatedly denied. If she's not granted parole sooner, she will get mandatory parole in 2032 at the age of 68 after having served 45 years. Now, I do think it's the theory that the sheriff did have about Elizabeth being present with two other men. It's quite possible. I think that Jens knew a lot of what happened in D.C. His alibi seems to stand up more than Elizabeth's version of events, in my opinion. Whether Jens was an accessory after the fact or before the fact, he was definitely an accessory. He knew what happened or he knew what was going to happen. I read the 19-page report. It is very persuasive, and it's coming from someone who doesn't have... It's not a defense report. This is a, a third party who stepped in and looked at it. I definitely do agree that maybe Jens did play down his part. It is quite possible he knew what was going to happen, but two consecutive life sentences, I think that that's not appropriate in this case. I don't think the evidence is there. All right, well, thank you for listening. You can find us on Facebook. Just look for Insight Podcast, two words. Twitter's at InsightfulPod. Instagram is at InsightPod. We have a website, InsightPod.com, where you can find all of our episodes. We also have a PayPal for a one-off donation, but we have Patreon for ongoing donations. And every month we're putting up bonus episodes, and those will continue through my maternity leave because we're pre-recording those as well for you guys. So definitely check that out if you're interested. We appreciate all the support. You can leave us a rating or review in iTunes. I think Podbean, Stitcher, there are some new apps coming out that are just for reviewing podcasts. Anywhere you could leave a review. I mean, that really does help get people to notice the show and get interested in the show. So we will see you guys next week. 